morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus. We thank you for giving us this word that we might hear your voice. And we pray this morning that you might take all distractions from us, enable us to hear your word, to live as your people and to trust your son in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm a pacer. My friends actually, well, my children actually, poke fun at me about it. Um, If we're watching a movie or a television program uh, together and the tension mounts and the music starts to swell and it looks like something horrible is about to happen, I find it hard to stay in my seat. I start walking around the room. (laughs) It's rather awkward when I'm in an aeroplane. It's embarrassing enough at home. Um, My children quickly draw attention to it. Sit down, Dad, you're pacing. I want to watch, but I don't want to watch. I know that if I persevere, uh, there will almost certainly be some kind of resolution, but I don't want to see the killer sneak in and do his or her work. I don't want to watch that moment of betrayal or harm or disaster. But if I'm really to appreciate the resolution, I have to watch and bear the tension for a little while. You don't really appreciate one without the other. When we turn our attention to the Hebrew prophets of the 8th, 7th and 6th centuries BC, I can feel a little twitchy. I feel myself wanting to rush towards the message of hope, no matter how slim it is, rather than take the time to feel the tension and bear the weight of the problem of sin, deeply ingrained and cancer-like in its spread. I'm tempted to skim over the announcement of God's judgment to come. But if I do that, I'll miss out on the scale and glory of the resolution, the extraordinary nature of God's grace, and the way it all paves the way for the ultimate confrontation of judgment and grace in the cross of Jesus. So I'm not going to pace this morning as we begin a short series of Friday sermons on the prophet Zephaniah. But I hope you and I feel more than a little uncomfortable as we face the reality of God's judgment on a world and indeed on a people who have conspicuously turned their back on him. Those with a wonderful heritage that they have discarded as unwanted waste. And for those returning to college next year, we'll take up our journey through the Gospel of Matthew in Term 3 when I come back from study leave. Zephaniah is a fascinating prophet. He was active sometime during the reign of King Josiah of Judah, which puts him in the late 7th century BC. Josiah was king from 641 to 609 BC. He was, you might remember, the great king who recovered the book of the law and restored the temple. Of him, the writer of two kings says, Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. 
But we would be mistaken if we thought that just because there was a faithful king on the throne, the nation had willingly given up its idolatry and returned to the Lord themselves. Zephaniah uh, was a remote relative of the king. King Josiah's great-grandfather Hezekiah was also Zephaniah's great-great-grandfather. But we don't know much more about him. The book of Zephaniah contains a sevenfold series of speeches, each series except the last, presenting the words of the Lord and then the words of the prophet. Yet the entire collection is described, all 13 parts, as the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Altogether, this is what God has to say to his people at that extraordinary time with its extraordinary contradictions. And it has been written, the Apostle Paul would remind us, for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So let's hear what is recorded here for us. If you haven't already done so, will you turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 1, and I am reading from verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And then the words of the prophet, Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, and it's almost as if at this point the Lord interrupts the prophet, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord... A cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. And once again the prophet speaks. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Then once more the Lord, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind, 
because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Then one last time, the prophet. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, for he will make a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth. It is a terrifying picture, and it is as large as it could possibly be in scope. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, the Lord says in verse 2. All the earth shall be consumed, says the prophet in verse 18. Don't know about you, uh, but the devastation of the flood in the time of Noah is echoing in the background for me. All swept away. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Well, the music's certainly beginning to swell. The tension is building. The entire human race, you see, is under judgment and the creation is about to be undone. Now, what could possibly warrant judgment on this scale? Why this wholesale devastation? We're going to be given an answer, but first look with me at how this chapter unfolds. The focus starts wide, then zooms in, then zooms out again to that same wide view with which it begins. And firstly, let's look at creation under judgment. There are few occasions in the entire Bible where the very first thing that is said is as devastating as the first words of Zephaniah. There is no build-up, no gentle positive followed by a decisive but. There's no if that would soften the statement and make it conditional. Zephaniah's book of prophecy just begins, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. All creation is under judgment. And you've got to know from the start that this is serious. The God of infinite patience and compassion announces he will act in devastating judgment and, as we'll see later, in wrath. It's not something that our world is willing to face, is it? There's been plenty of talk um, just in the last week of how we are destroying the creation Unless we act urgently now, in the next 10 years, it will be too late, we'll be overtaken by catastrophe. But the suggestion that the most urgent challenge to the entire creation, to everything on the face of the earth, actually comes from the judgment of the living God, is not something we want to countenance. Yet this is precisely what is being said in these opening verses of Zephaniah 1. Skip down to the last sentence of the chapter. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed, for he will make a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth. You see, the living God is not some tribal God. He's not the private possession of a particular nation or people or even of those with a particular creed. He never was. His interest and involvement in his creation is not limited to one small part of it. 
As one writer has put it, the Lord is the universal God. He created the earth and his judgments extend throughout it. The consequences of what is done on earth by any one of us are much more complex and much more far-reaching than many of us realise. If there really is not one square millimetre in the universe over which Christ does not say, this is mine, then the whole universe is accountable to God. And I'm pressed to ask again, what could possibly warrant judgment on this scale? We are told back in the time of Noah that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's why the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. We might say the rot had set in. But the point is that it had set in so deep and so wide that the entire world was ruined. And even the flood, starting over again with Noah, the one man who found favour in the eyes of the Lord, didn't solve the problem. That's why David could write centuries later in Psalm 14 of the spread of wickedness not just in the nation of Israel but in the children of man. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, David wrote, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And it's why the Apostle Paul can write that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. It's gone that far. It's that huge a problem. The roots are so very deep and the spread is so very wide that the entire creation, including the non-human beasts, birds and fish, stand under God's judgment. Now feel the weight of that for a moment. For there are lots of beautiful things. There were lots of beautiful things in Jerusalem and Judah in those days. Buildings, craft work, literature, even people. And the great empires of Assyria and Babylon, the 26th dynasty in Egypt, the Zhu dynasty in China, their grand cultural achievements, splendid buildings, philosophy and science, all of that was flourishing at the time Zephaniah was prophesying. And yet it all comes under judgment. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. It is genuinely hard, isn't it, uh, for us to look at our world with the things we enjoy so very much, the culture, the highbrow and the lowbrow, wherever you put yourself, the technological advance that leaves us speechless, the developments in knowledge and understanding and skill, to look at it all and not feel decidedly uncomfortable with a word like this. It seems so uncontrolled and disproportionate. I will utterly sweep away everything. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. But friends, that very feeling should lead us to ask whether we've really understood the seriousness of what has happened to bring about such a thorough and widespread judgment. 
because the whole of scripture testifies that the only real disproportion is in God's grace. He is extravagantly gracious in the light of a judgment that is universally deserved. It is always right and always warranted and we need to understand how black things really are for all their artificial light and glamour. But the Lord has more to say than simply announcing his intention to judge the entire creation. So creation under judgment, secondly, covenant in tatters. In the second half of his first speech, the Lord sharpens the focus to his particular people, the nation with a special relationship to him, the bearers of his promise, the kingdom of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For it seems the future of the world, of the entire human race, and the future of God's people are intertwined. At the base of Mount Sinai, God had promised them, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. My treasured possession, for all the earth is mine. The two truths are inseparable. So when the covenant is in tatters, the consequences are horrendous. When those to whom so much is given turn their back on the one who's given it to them, disaster is not far away. And that is clearly what has been happening in Judah and Jerusalem. The grotesque gods of the nations have found a place in the hearts of those the living God has claimed as his own. Verses 4 and 5 speak of the remnant of Baal, still there presumably, despite the godly king. Idolatrous priests who bow down on their roofs to the host of the heavens. They may pay lip service to the Lord, but they also swear by Milcom. And just in case it's not clear what's going on, it's spelt out for us in verse 6. They have turned back from following the Lord and do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And those who have received so much at God's hands, who've been brought from nowhere and made into a people, were about to watch it torn away. The walls and gates behind which they thought they were secure, the market economy where trade and money had brought them comfort and luxury, allowed them to dress themselves in foreign attire. don't know whether they had Gucci labels or things in those days. Build their houses their vineyards, it'll all be gone. None of it could protect them on the day of the Lord. They had fooled themselves that the Lord was indifferent or impotent or both, but that was an illusion that was not going to last. Friends, in the days of King Josiah, that great king who loved the Lord and served him faithfully, in those days, the covenant remained in tatters. And God's message to his rebellious people was that pure and complete and entirely just judgment is coming and you've seen nothing like it. There will be no half measures. Look again at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the Lord, sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of bitterness and anguish 
a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. It's not all Zephaniah has to say, of course, but pause here and feel the terrible weight of this. To people who had been redeemed and who bear his promises, to those people, God's prophet begins in this way, with this global warning. There is a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, and it will be everything it should be because of what we've done. And need I say, it would be worse than anything that was done in the decades following King Josiah's reign. The Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a message of great hope because it is given against the darkest of all possible backgrounds. Betrayal by his people, a special possession who despised what they'd been given, and a world disintegrating under the judgment of God. It was obvious even in Josiah's day. It is, isn't it, just as obvious today. And as we've seen, those two things are never unrelated, the betrayal of his people and the disintegration of the creation. The gospel is an announcement of deliverance, but it can only be such a wonderful deliverance because there's something terrifying from which we have been delivered, all of us. I was reminded this week of those who've been changing song lyrics to remove all reference to the wrath of God and judgment. It's unpalatable, it makes us feel uncomfortable. Let's talk about God's love instead. Let's not talk about God's wrath or God's justice. Let's sing about the happy things, the nice things. But to avoid these truths because they are uncomfortable or unpalatable is to evacuate the idea of God's love of all meaning. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were children of wrath just like the rest of humankind. That's the wonder of it. That even so, God out of his great love made us alive together with Christ. Friends, it's important not to look away or to go pacing around the room when the music reaches its crescendo and the global warning is given in all its darkness. It's important to take the coming judgment seriously. Zephaniah was not only speaking of the fall of Jerusalem and the exile in 587 BC, the near future to him. He anticipated something far more searching and extensive, and terrifying, and final. And you get a glimpse of it, just a glimpse, in some other words of Paul, his description of the Christians in Thessalonica. Do you remember it? You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that's where we have to land, isn't it? Staring reality in the face, recognising what it says about our idolatrous love of the world and the seriousness of sin, but rejoicing in and trusting the Christ who came 
so that we might be delivered from the wrath to come.